Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Karen Little. Karen and her husband founded Alley Cat Advocates in Louisville, Kentucky in 1999. Her career as a faculty member at the University of Louisville did not stop her from recognizing a tremendous need for trap-new-to-return services in the community and from working hard to fill that need. Navigating the challenges presented by a Kentucky community with a nonprofit limited admission shelter and an open admission municipal shelter, as well as various rescues, Karen put her public service skills to the test to push for and support the formation of strong, collaborative safety net programs for community cats and was instrumental in putting in place an ordinance change that mandates TNR in the community. Alley Cat Advocates has altered over 35,000 cats, has watched the live release rate for cats reach 90%, and continues to strive to make Louisville the safest city in the country to be a community cat. Wow, Karen, I want to be a community cat in Louisville based on that description. That's fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. So you talked a bit about starting Alley Cat Advocates in 1999. Specifically, can you give us a little more detail about how and, and how the specifics of how you got started? Absolutely. I'm happy to. Um, so I was a faculty member at the University of Louisville, and my home is about a 15-minute walk from the campus, which, of course, I walked every day. This starting in 1989, and I kept finding stray cats on my walk to work and on my walk home from work. And it was pretty frustrating because I very quickly ran out of friends, relatives, neighbors, enemies, co-workers to find homes for these cats that I kept coming upon. So my husband and I decided we needed to work in the community to get this problem under control. It was clearly in our mind, it was a spay neuter problem, not really an adoption problem. So we worked with a foster and adoption group in town, hoping that they had enough of a spay neuter component to satisfy the needs that we were experiencing firsthand. Um, They didn't really focus as much on spay neuter as we had hoped, and certainly not in in the early 90s on trap neuter return. So my husband and I started attending conferences across the country to try to figure out how we could best make an effective change strategically in Louisville. And this was 95 through 98 approximately. At that time, the big pushes in the movement were trap-neuter return and high-volume, high-quality spay-neuter clinics. Neither of us were in a position at that time to give up our full-time careers, so we decided that a high-volume spay-neuter clinic, while really probably the most effective way we could move forward that needle was not something that we could pursue. So we landed on the trap, neuter, return, volunteer-based movement and started the group, as you said, in 1999. We spent a whole year 
from 1999 to 2000, just making sure our ducks were in a row, that we had a logo, that we had a newsletter format we wanted to use, basically building the infrastructure of volunteers, everything that we needed to be successful. And we were hoping that we would have a group that we could do 10, maybe 15 spays and neuters every month starting in October of 2000 and move forward with that. And what we found was we had absolutely selected an area that the community was very much in need of. And the goal of five, 10 or 15 surgeries a month was immediately surpassed beyond our wildest dreams. So, so that was like your first um, endeavor into actually almost a targeted approach. And then, and the other thing that I think was really fascinating that you were just talking about too, is that you had a lot of patience when you first started out. And I think that when many groups start out, they rush into things right away. How did you know to sort of take that time to develop your infrastructure? Is that something that's, that's in your background or you just wanted to make sure you had something that was going to last, you know, beyond just you and your husband? What were the, what was the thought process behind that? Sure. I'm not really sure where or how I developed the notion that long-term vision and careful planning leads to success, but in almost everything that I do, that's how I approach it. So we went into the group really with a 20-year plan. Maybe in the next 20 years, we'll be able to affect change that's really meaningful in our community, and this is the way we're going to do it. And while we were targeted in that our piece of the animal welfare world was trap, neuter, return, we didn't really realize the benefits of more micro-targeting until quite a few years into our existence. And as you developed these, you were doing the MASH-style clinics. Is that what you were working with? That's right. We had no veterinarians in the late 1990s and early 2000s in our community that were willing to step up and spay and neuter enough cats to make the difference that we were looking for. So I traveled to San Diego and watched the Feral Cat Coalition's weekend event, which they were doing strongly at that point and still are, and really learned a lot, came back to Louisville and said, that's what we need to do. We need to develop our own crew of volunteers. We need to reach out to the community and pull in volunteer veterinarians that are of like mind and just do this. And so that's what we did. We started first working just in a vet clinic, doing literally 10 on a Sunday afternoon to the point in 2001 where we were doing really the beginning of what came to be huge MASH style spay neuter events where we were altering between 150 and 200 cats on a Sunday. And are you still running those MASH style clinics now or do you have another spay neuter alternative? We have both now, which is absolutely fantastic. We still run the MASH-style spay-neuter clinics, very effective for volunteer recruitment. Uh, They're obviously a very visual 
um, way to gather the community and really have them embrace the trap new to return concept, both as caretakers and also people who are interested in volunteering in general. We also have the luxury now in 2007, our local humane society started a humane alliance model spay neuter clinic. So we're now able to supplement our mash style monthly events with that spay neuter clinic. So currently we're running six of the big fixes. That's what we call the mash style events a year. And then we're scheduling 125 cats every week through the high volume spay neuter clinic. So that's a great amount of spay neuter capacity. And I'm assuming the mash style clinics, the uh, cost is free or a donation? Yes, absolutely. We've always run those with, um, we call them donation-based. We never use the word free because I'm paying the bills and they're certainly not free. We call them donation-based. And so we recover between five and six dollars per cat through the donations that we receive directly at those events. We also offer the high volume spay-neuter clinic surgeries at no cost um, because of grant support we've been able to get for those surgeries. You talked about partnering earlier with um, a local group. Um, you also partner with a municipal shelter, um, and what are and are there any other collaborative partners? Certainly, we do um, collaborate very closely with the municipal shelter and also with our private nonprofit shelter. The early on, I realized between 2000 and 2005, when we were first getting started, we were pretty much focused inwardly on the group and the success of the group and the really the change we were making on an individual cat and individual caretaker level, which was wonderful. Um, and of course, trap new to return and the caretakers um, really are able it speaks for itself, the success that it generates. But it came to my attention around 2005 when we were well into our process that the municipal shelter was euthanizing every single cat that came in to the shelter. There was no adoption program and there was no attempt to reach out to potential owners of lost cats whatsoever. So it was the Monday kill, the Tuesday kill, et cetera, through the week. And that was accepted by our city as the norm. But I saw that there were ear-tipped cats getting euthanized, ear-tipped cats that caretakers had cared enough to bring to us because we force, quote-unquote, the caretakers to play an active role in our process. They pick up traps. They take our training away. They trap their cats. They bring them to us, and they pick up their cats and return the traps to us. So these are people that were very invested in their cats. And what was happening on occasion was those cats were ending up at the shelter, and they were being euthanized, just summarily being euthanized because they were cats. And I didn't think that we needed to continue to work with that as a model, all the work and effort that was going into those animals and just obviously the humane aspect of euthanizing animals was just not not understandable. So I started in the middle of 2000, around 2005, working aggressively with the leadership at our municipal shelter just to understand their challenges and their perspectives and to support those staff that didn't want to be doing that either. So that was very effective in moving um, forward with just the model of a partnership. There was going to be a time when I could only verbalize my disappointment in the most polite of terms, and change was going to be only with the change in leadership. 
But by getting my feet wet with how to communicate politely about something that was happening that was so horrendous really helped me move forward with an understanding that cooperation was going to be the foundation of our success. So we did move forward. We're now on the seventh director of that facility. And at this point, fast forwarding quite a ways, we have an active shelter neuter return program. We have the trap neuter return program um, in our community. The ordinance mandates that our municipal shelter use trap neuter return as an effective cat overpopulation control method. Um, and we are working in partnership. Their officers now trap they completely are on board with everything that we're doing to save lives at this point. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Flashlight tag was fun when you were a kid, but no one wants to play hide and seek with their trap. Find your trap's location quickly and safely, even when you visit it at night with the Reveal Wild application for Samsung Galaxy, HTC One, Sony, Xperia, and other Android phones. Or go to tinyurl.com forward slash reveal wild. So in general, there have always been mixed feelings about whether to have uh, an ordinance with that addresses TNR or to not in a community. But it sounds like in, in your case, crafting this ordinance was extremely impactful and very successful for the community. It was. One has to, however, realize and understand that the ordinance did not change until 2012. And we did our first surgeries as a TNR organization in October of 2000. So there was 12 years of grassroots support being built across our community to support trap neuter return. By the time that ordinance came before our council, the sky had not fallen. The world was still in one piece, and yet we were able to say that we had been doing trap neuter return for individual citizens on individual citizens' property with their permission for 12 years. So the groundwork was already there. There was no going back, and that ordinance passed unanimously. I'm not in a community that took on that change first. I'm very lucky to have had that kind of grassroots support behind us when we took that step. So it sort of felt like it was just an obvious course of action to take after having so many years of success. Oh, absolutely. It was the right next step to get those, basically to use it as a way to get the animals out out of the shelter alive that were not going to be, be going up for adoption. Of course, we were trying to, through our work, make there be fewer cats at the shelter to begin with, and that was highly successful, but there were still those animals that were getting to the shelter that needed to get out alive, and that ordinance passed the end last day of April in 2012, and by June 1st, we had, we were doing shelter new to return, and since that time, all healthy animals of stray type have um, gotten out of the shelter alive. And there haven't been any sort of repercussions of those cats being returned back out into the community, any increase in complaint calls or anything, any sort of backlash. It's all been a successful response. 
Absolutely. There is always going to be people who complain no matter what you're doing, and those people still exist. We are very empathetic to those who would rather not have the cats on their front porch or digging in their garden, and we work as intensely with them as we do with the caretakers to provide them with the resources they need to keep the cats away from their properties. Um, we also understand that there are caretakers down the street who are as intensely interested in keeping the cats healthy and happy, and so we work with them as well. The, there has been no outcry of horribleness, and again, we've been doing it for 12 years. This was just a logical extension that had no backlash whatsoever. So if you saw a stray cat on the street, which you did back in the mid-90s and, and early 90s, but if you saw a stray cat on the street uh, today, what would you do? I love to see stray cats on the street, not because I want them to be there, but because I recognize that there's a good place for them to be and a service that can help them be as happy and healthy as possible. I would first identify whether that cat has an ear tip. We have literally thousands, tens of thousands of ear tipped graduates in our community. So the first thing to do would be determine whether or not it's already has a caretaker who's watching out over it and has already gotten the services to that cat that it needed. After that, I would observe the cat to see where it might be eating. We work directly with caretakers. We need to know who's feeding the cat so that we can provide the best services and support to that caretaker. So I would look and observe over a course of, it depends on how long I would need, maybe days, maybe weeks, to see where that cat's being fed. He's being fed somewhere or he wouldn't be there. So once I've identified the caretaker, I would then approach the caretaker, assuming that it's an unear-tipped cat, and talk to them about the services that our group provides and the benefits that might come to them and their neighbors if we were allowed to work with them to get their cat vaccinated and altered. I was honored to uh, be able to co-present um, at the expo that was brought, put on by the Humane Society of the United States with you a few weeks ago. Um, so I, I know, and as you say, you are a 20-year-ahead vision thinker. So I'll pose this question that I've posed to some of my other guests, which is if you go fast forward down the road about five or 10 years, what do you think life will be like around the country for community cats? My vision and hope is that not only are there fewer because of so much hard work going into the spaying and neutering, the, the trap neuter return that so many of us are doing. So I see there being fewer. I also see those that remain being healthier and happier because the nuisance ones, the ones that we can see are going to be altered and ear tipped and vaccinated. I also see our movement moving more toward remedy. We are a reactionary movement. Trap, neuter, return where is a reaction to cats left by people unaltered. And the more we can support and prevent the people from leaving those cats behind, the more ultimately we'll be put out of business, which is my ultimate goal. That sounds very exciting. Um, and I, I do look forward to to seeing what life will be like for community cats going forward. Now you're in Louisville, I would assume, is Louisville the largest city in Kentucky? It is. Um, it, 
what what's going on across the state uh, for Kentucky? Is the is the same uh, TNR uh, spread happening, or are there pockets in Kentucky that still need a lot of assistance with community cats? I would say that the bulk of the state still needs tremendous assistance. There are pockets of very visionary people doing great work in very small portions of the state. For the most part, the state is still very challenged in the area of humane treatment of animals in general, and in particular, the cats. So if we were to reach out into the state, I think we could be busy for a very long time. And do you think the solution uh, across the state is developing a lot of small grassroots organization to work in the more rural areas or the smaller cities? Or would it be a good idea to do sort of a, a statewide collaborative effort? I'm just wondering what your what your grassroots solution would be. Um, the grassroots solution that I would propose would be for individuals in those individual communities who are compassionate and caring and who can take the big picture view of their particular world to take this challenge on. We need our communities to be caring. I really talk a lot about the culture of caring that we've been able to grow in Louisville, and there's no reason that that culture of caring can't be grown in other communities if there's a person who can take that on. The challenge, I think, will be that it does take patience, thoughtfulness, and really a drive to understand that change is not going to happen overnight. And I think that, in general, that will be the biggest challenge across our state. In the past several years, you and I have had the uh, pleasure of working together through the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society's mentoring program, and you've been able to work with quite a few other groups. Um, and it sounds like, you know, from your experience with working with other groups, the, you know, quite a few, you're talking about patience and vision and planning, um, creating a culture of caring. These are all items that uh, groups need to think about when they're developing their programs. Um, have you had uh, other groups come and visit you? Is that a possibility if there are groups interested in learning more maybe about your MASH style clinics or how your operations work? Absolutely. We have visitors a couple times a year, just unsolicited reaching out to us. We invite them in to look at the MASH style um, clinics that we run. We invite them in to look at our high volume work that we do with our spay neuter clinic that's around the block from our offices. We also um, are very supportive of anyone who wants to know more about the infrastructure of just running a nonprofit. There are a lot of people who want to trap cats, a surprisingly large number of people who want to trap cats. An organization also needs someone who's interested in budgeting and planning and strategic vision. And those skill sets also need to be developed. And we're happy to work with people who feel intimidated or incapacitated by those challenges as well. If people are interested in reaching out to, to find you, how would they do that? Sure. My email address is the easiest way, and that's Karen, with a K, period, little, L-I-T-T-L-E, at alleycatadvocates.org. That comes directly to me. For those interested in making a phone call, our number is 502 634 
800-242-8777. It's always a machine. Do not be intimidated. Leave a message. And I do return calls uh, immediately um, when they're left on that number. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today, Karen? For those listeners who are interested, we do have a website that has a lot of resource materials on it. Um, from building shelters to feeding in the summer, all kinds of resources. And that's at alleycatadvocates.org. And we'd love anybody who has any interest to check us out on our website. Sounds great. And the one thing I'd like to stress with our listeners, if you are thinking about starting a small grassroots TNR program or community cats program, you know, don't be afraid. It, it's something that many of us have done and we do continually. It is a lot of work, but if you get the right help and the right the right people on the bus, as they say, um, you could be very successful and certainly be uh, life changing for the cats in your community. Um, Karen, I want to thank you so much for uh, being a guest on the show today, and I look forward to having you again in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Community Cats Podcast. If you could go to iTunes and review the show, we'd really appreciate it. When you do, take a screenshot of your review, go to communitycatspodcast.com forward slash review and enter your information and we'll send you a t-shirt. While you're there, don't forget to check out all the ways you can support the content you're passionate about. Thanks, everyone.